Hey guys, welcome to More Like Christ. I'm Jordan and today we're answering a question received on YouTube. Why are there so many Bibles and which one is true? I'm going to look at how we've ended up with the Bibles that we have, the modern translations, um, the way in which Bibles have been translated. We're going to go through a few common translations that you'll find today and some pros and cons for each of those. And then I'm going to be looking at a couple of translations which I would generally steer well clear of. So a very quick words on the Bible in general. Um, the Bible is a collection of written works. Uh, they're collected together and they're recognised to be the inspired words authored by God. Um, the Bible has about 40 authors, roughly, um, and uh, the dates of those range from about 1450 BC uh, through till about 100 AD, so about 1500 years or so. The Bible books in their original forms come in three languages, uh, Greek, Hebrew, and there's a little bit of Aramaic in there as well. And God's words are they're very important to Christians because uh, they're the ultimate authority in our lives. They, they teach us about God and how we should live uh, so that we can glorify and please him. Now, I don't quite have enough time uh, to look into at length here about how we've collected and verified that the Greek and Hebrew texts we have are accurate. But if you want to go away and look at it yourself, uh, you can go and find that um, the method is called textual criticism. So feel free. There's loads of literature which you can go and read about that. But in summary, the thousands of pieces of the Bible that we have today, um, and these are called manuscripts. Uh, these are analysed and they're compared for authenticity to enable the most accurate and um, the most original documents as possible. Uh, we have about 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament today, uh, the earliest of which dates back to about AD 130, which probably would have been second generation Christians. Um, and so, you know, there would have been people who knew the original writers. Uh, just for comparison, um, you might have heard of um, the Iliad by Homer, uh, not Simpson, um, the, the classical author Homer. Um, well, the Iliad has more manuscripts than any other classical work. Um, it has just just a little bit over 1000 manuscripts. And so, you know, we're already talking about five times more manuscripts of the New Testament. And the earliest manuscript we have of the Iliad comes from about the 10th century AD after Christ, which is over almost 2000 years after the originals were written, uh, which is about 760 BC. So, you know, the remove of the time distance between then is 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 crazy, actually. Um, so it's really difficult to tell whether those are the actual accurate manuscripts or not. Experts in textual criticism estimate that the New Testament we have is about 98 or 99 percent uh, true to the originals. Um, and the one or two percent that scholars disagree on uh, don't actually hold any meaning uh, differences. And so it, it <clears throat> although we're not exactly sure what those words might be, um, it doesn't actually change the meaning at all. 
So we can be assured that the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testaments are accurate um, and as they were when they were written. But we do have a problem that unless you're Greek uh, or unless you're Israeli, um, or even then, uh, there's a good chance that you're not going to understand uh, the, the original languages the way that they were written. So um, we have to translate them into a language which we which we do understand. And let me just be clear here that, um, and you hear this all the time, that uh, people will say, oh, well, the Bible has just been translated and changed so many times. Um, it's been corrupted. We can't trust it today. Uh, the pesky Catholics have broken it. <laughs> uh, that's a joke, by the way. Um, this is categorically not true. Um, the modern... Bible translations that we have today are translated directly from the original language. So it's not as if, you know, it's been translated from the original into this, into that, into that, into that, so on and so on, like a Chinese whispers kind of thing. That's just, that's just not true. Uh, we actually have the original documents. And so there's just one process of translation from the original to what we have today. So, you know, you hear that from time to time. Uh, I think it's been disproved, but um, that people do still hold that view from time to time. But why are there so many different translations? And there are, there are loads, uh, hundreds probably. Um, but surely if we, if we know the words in Greek and Hebrew, then we can just agree on what they are in English. But um, that doesn't quite work out, really. And let me give you an example. You think of the phrase um, break a leg in English uh, and to, to the average Westerner, to the average person who's um, fluent in English, uh, they're going to know that break a leg means good luck and uh, is often associated with performance or the theatre or whatever. But someone who's not familiar with that phrase, um, English may not be their first language, and someone tells you to break a leg, you you might feel a little bit uh, threatened <laughs> um, by that phrase. Um, so, you know, not knowing a language, uh, you can have some difficulties sometimes where there are these phrases. And um, the German language has a similar phrase. Um, and if it's translated directly into English, it would mean something like uh, neck and leg fracture. So <laughs> you can tell it, it it's kind of the same, but uh, also very different. So you see, there are some difficulties going from one language to another. Um, and Greek and Hebrew are full of these little phrases uh, called idioms. That's the technical term. So when translating, we have to take this into consideration. Um, and as well as that, there are words which can mean different things. So, uh, for example, the, the Hebrew word esed um, can be translated uh, love or charity or kindness or loving kindness even. Um, and sometimes like sometimes whole sentences don't quite make sense either. And so you have to sort of change whole sentences from one to another. And so that is, that's a process and you have to make a judgment and interpretation to an extent of, about that. Um, and as an example, um, so the Bible I generally read, um, there's a Greek word and, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation. Um, but the word is uh, heterodidskalein. 
Perfect. Uh, that's, that's, sorry for any um, Greek people who are listening to this. Um, but in 1 Timothy, uh, first chapter, um, that word, Greek word, is translated to to teach any different doctrine. So one, one Greek word translated to teach any different doctrine. But if I look at a different translation, uh, it would read to teach any false doctrine. So false already is different to different. Um, and actually, if you look at another, you could, you could read the same word translated to say teaching contrary to the truth. So you can see um, the meaning is the same. Uh, you look at it, the meaning, it means the same thing. But what's different is just how readable and understandable this is to the reader. Um, and this is an arbitrary example, but in some cases it really does matter what that word is and how that's been translated. So when a group of Bible experts with PhDs get together and they want to make a new translation, which, which does happen from time to time, um, they sit down, uh, they get the Greek and the Hebrew texts out the cupboards, and they go about trying to start translating the text. But they have to make some decisions about how they do that. And so two general schools, uh, whether they translate the words exactly as they are from Greek to English or Hebrew to English, or whether they look at the overall meaning of a section text uh, and translate based on the overall message. And this on a spectrum. This is on a spectrum. On one side, you have a complete paraphrase where they've taken whole sections and translated it idea for idea. Uh, this is called paraphrase or uh, sometimes dynamic equivalence or functional equivalence. Um, and on the other side, you have almost literal word for word, Greek for English. Uh, and this is called formal equivalence. Um, as in the form of the word or the sentence is just taken exactly as it is in Greek and put into English. Um, and there are difficulties with both approaches. On the thought for thought approach, um, you, you kind of have to interpret the meaning of what the Greek is saying before you put that in English. Um, and if you get that interpretation wrong, you risk the translation in English not meaning exactly what it was supposed to in Greek. Um, and if there's one thing that Christians have struggled with over the years, uh, it is interpretation. <laughs> um, and so there is a danger that if you get the interpretation wrong, what, what you end up with is going to be wrong. Um, and on the word for word approach, uh, you do, you risk the English not really making sense because the way that Greek sentences are structured, uh, the way that Greek idioms are um, translated, uh, it just wouldn't make sense in English. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, at the end of one of John's letters, um, he says something like, uh, when I see you, we will speak uh mouth to mouth <laughs> literally in the greek uh mouth to mouth and if you said mouth to mouth to an average english speaker they would immediately think of cpr and trying to resuscitate someone or um <laughs> if uh if, if talking mouth to mouth uh you could potentially construe that as a euphemism for kissing someone potentially um so <laughs> Uh, in English, obviously, it means talking face to face. That's that, that's what it means in 
John in the Greek says speaking mouth to mouth, but actually it means we're speaking face to face as in in person. So this is why we have different translations. Um, groups of scholars have chosen to translate uh, in a certain way, idea for idea or word for word. So which Bible is true? And the short answer is all of them, I guess. Um, but a, a better question to ask is uh, which translation is best for me and the way that I read it? So let's go into that a little bit. If you if you want to study the words, as in and the grammar being used, um, the way that the original authors intended these words to be used, then a more literal translation is going to be best for you. Um, but if you want to read long sections of scripture at a time, um, perhaps you want to read it out loud, or if you're following like a Bible in a year uh, plan where you're reading like several chapters at a time, so you're getting quite getting through quite a lot. Um, you might find a more free-flowing, thought-for-thought translation might be better in that context. Um, in my opinion, and this is um, you know encouraged and backed up by a number of my professors at seminary, uh, it's useful to have a range and to have um, some which are more formal and then some which are more dynamic. Uh, and it helps you just to um, read something and if you can see that you, there's a word here or a phrase that you don't quite understand, look at it in a different translation and it might just help you to to get to a, a deeper meaning. Um, I like to have actual Bibles because uh, I'm a bit old school and I like to write down things on the pages. But you've got access these days to hundreds of translations, literally uh, with free apps like YouVersion or um, online on Bible Gateway. There are myriads of translations that you can access at the, the touch of a button or a screen. Um, sometimes I'll be reading something in depth in a more formal uh, translation and I'll struggle with the meaning. So I'll turn to a more dynamic translation and see what it says. And that can help. And it works the other way as well. I might be reading something in a more dynamic uh, translation and think, Oh, I'm really interested in what that says. So I'll I'll open it up in a a more literal, formal translation so that I can look a bit more deeply into what's being said. Now I'm going to go through five common Bible translations. Uh, I'm going to explain the approach that's been taken in the translation, uh, whether it might be good or a bad translation for you. And then I'm going to read a few verses from Psalm 1 so that you can get a feel for what it feels like, what it sounds like, how it reads. Um, and then I'm going to speak about two translations to steer well clear of. The first version we have is called the Message Version. And the Message was written by a scholar, Eugene Peterson. It's first published in 1993. It's been paraphrased from the original languages into a modern contemporary language and is the freest example we have of a Bible today. Sometimes several verses are grouped together and put into one modern paragraph. Uh, the message brings vibrancy and freshness to passages and will serve people wanting to understand the Bible in, in a modern idea-based English. The message wouldn't be appropriate for someone who wants to teach the Bible to others um, or to get the details of words and phrases used by the original authors because there are, these are replaced by modern words and terminology. 
Some would argue that the message goes beyond what can be called a translation for this reason, um, and I tend to agree with this. It's perhaps best to consider the message as a pure paraphrase rather than a translation. Personally, I don't have a problem with people reading the message, but I would caution people not to use it as their primary Bible, because after all, it has been reframed in a modern way by a man who can make mistakes. I've seen loads of Bible teachers quote the message alongside a more formal translation, but it should be always used to add colour rather than a primary text, in my opinion. Psalm 1 verse 1 to 3 reads, How well God must like you. You don't walk in the ruts of those blind as bats. You don't stand with the good-for-nothings. You don't take your seat among the know-it-alls. Instead, you thrill to God's words. You chew on scripture day and night. You're a tree replanted in Eden, bearing fresh fruit every month, never dropping a leaf, always in blossom. The next one we have is the New Living Translation. Originally released in 1996, the NLT is a great example of a dynamic equivalence. 90 scholars took seven years to translate the whole Bible from the original languages, from all sorts of different denominations to cancel out any biases held by the translators. The NLT is extremely readable and can give a fresher presentation of the biblical text than some more formal translations. The NLT is a favourite among people who want to read larger portions of the Bible at once, like a Bible in a year plan, for example, or if they want to read the Bible out loud. Though the NLT is definitely a translation, I would again be hesitant to use it as a primary translation or to teach or to undergo deeper study. Due to the dynamic equivalence, there is a risk that some of the meaning of the original words will be lost. Psalm 1, 1-3 reads, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the river bank, bearing fruit in each season, their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. Next we have the New International Version. This was originally published in 1973 but has been reissued and updated several times since then. The NIV is probably the most popular Bible translation worldwide. This is due to the balance between formal and dynamic equivalents. Over a hundred scholars were involved in the project of translating the NIV who, though they aimed for a word-for-word -word translation, argued that the Greek and Hebrew language and grammar must be altered sometimes to make the text understandable and readable in English. Purists might complain because there are elements of dynamic translation, and others might complain because it's still a little too formal for them. But the NIV is an extremely well-rounded Bible that is very common in the whole spectrum of church membership from leadership uh, Bible study groups, personal devotions. If someone wanted to buy their first Bible and asked me which version to get, I would generally recommend the NIV. Um, and in fact, I have a few NIV New Testaments that I give to people from time to time. Psalm 1, 1 to 3 reads, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, whose delight is in the law of the Lord who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. 
The next version we have is the New King James Version. The New King James is actually just a slight modernization of the original King James Version published in 1611. You might hear some call this the authorised version. Pastor at my church jokes that he reads the version that Paul wrote, the New King James. Uh, <laughs> uh, just a joke, of course. Um, the KJV does have a beautiful, poetic and literary English with the these, thous, dots and doits, you know, um, things that people often think about in relation to the King James. It's true that there is a beauty to it and it was translated to be accurate and a formal equivalent um, but the main issues I have with the King James today is that although it's been updated it can still be really tough to read and a new reader might be a bit put off by the old English. Also the translation was made during um, a time when they had a, a very limited number of manuscripts like less than 10 whereas today we have over 5,800. Um, <clears throat> although it's been amended through the years, there are still, I think, some textual errors that in more modern translations have been fixed because of the literal thousands more manuscripts we have today. Personally, I rarely look at the King James, uh, and this is just a preference because if I want a formal equivalence, I'll go to the ESV or the NASB, and if I want a more dynamic version, I'll go to the NIV or the NLT. Um, this isn't to say that it's not useful or edifying to readers, it would be, but for a modern reader there are better options in my opinion. Psalm 1, 1-3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water brings forth its fruit in season, and whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Next we have the English Standard Version. Since 2001 the ESV is finding great popularity for all types of people from pastors to new converts. The ESV is described as essentially literal, uh, it's aiming to be as word for word as possible while still leaving the English readable and engaging. The ESV would be good for any person, but the English does tend to be a little bit more complex because the Greek and the Hebrew overtones have been left in to show the read-through from the Old and New Testament. It's a favourite among pastors and seminary students because it is a literal translation that can double as a devotional Bible. If you're after a Bible that's simple to read and allows large passages to be read with ease, the ESV might leave you struggling a bit at times. Um, the ESV is my most often used translation, uh, but sometimes I couple this with the NIV or the NLT just for reference. Psalm 1, 1-3 reads, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. He yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Finally, we have the New American Standard Bible. Although the NASB is not the most popular translation among uh, the average churchgoer, I've included it in this list because it is the best example of a translation that has translated the original Greek and Hebrew into English and only changed the text if it doesn't make grammatical sense. 
The NASB inserts some articles on participles uh, where they're omitted um, in the Greek because they're not needed. Uh, Greek doesn't necessarily use those articles. But these words that have been added in are italicized so that you can see what English words have been added to make the Greek make sense, for example. The NASB is very popular among Bible scholars and seminary students because of its closeness to the original language. Um, if you're like me, uh, unable to read Greek or Hebrew, but you still want to get as close as possible to the original words, the NASB is the best you will find in English. The language can be stilted and hard to read in places, and this is because there's less compromise between the English and the original language grammar and syntax. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. And here's the spectrum I mentioned earlier, and I've placed each of these five Bibles along the scale so that you can see them in relation to each other, where they sit along this scale from dynamic to formal equivalence. Now, there is a darker side to Bible translations, and this is because if you get a group of people, enough people together uh, with the wrong idea or the wrong motives, um, or not enough people, as I'll go into in a minute, um, you can get things quite wrong. Um, and I have two translations uh, that I want to mention, um, which I would steer well clear of, um, and here's why. The first is uh, the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. Um, if you're not aware, this is the version that the Jehovah's Witnesses use. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, although they call themselves Christians, um, don't believe that Jesus is God in the same sense that Orthodox Christians do, in the sense that we believe Jesus is a member of the Trinity. They believe him to be created, the first created being by the Father. Um, and, and this Bible is riddled with problems um, to back up their theology. One of the most famous examples of this is in the Gospel of John, uh, which reads in the ESV, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the New World Translation reads, The word was in the beginning with God, and was a God. The word was used by God to create all other things. Now, I mean, there's loads we could say about that, but in particular, the article, a God, leaves the identity of the word, Jesus, not as the God, capital G, Jesus is not God, um, but as a God, little g. Um, now, the Greek doesn't allow this, um, actually, it doesn't allow you to insert an a, the article a, in, um, but the JWs will argue that it does. Um, and you can see why they would want it to, because it fits with their theology of Jesus being a created being. Um, needless to say, this translation is made by a group of people who don't hold orthodox Christian beliefs. Um, so my advice would be to avoid at all costs. 
The second example of a Bible to avoid is called the Passion Translation. The Passion has been translated by a chap called Brian Simmons, who, from what I can tell, is a truly passionate and devoted Christian um, who's trying to help people read the Bible as well as they can. Um, but you might remember with the other versions I mentioned, some of them, um, like 90 or 100 scholars, um, all with PhDs and, and clever heads come together to make these translations. But the Passion Translation has just been translated by this one guy, Brian Simmons. Um, what qualifications does this guy have? You might ask, well, I don't think he has any. Um, and this is this is part of the problem. Um, you know, when Eugene Peterson translated the message, just one guy, um, at least he, he has a PhD. He is a Bible teacher. Um, and he actually, he doesn't dress it up as a translation. He, he says, this is a, this is a paraphrase and this is what I'm aiming to do. Um, whereas the passion translation is in the name, really, it poses itself as a translation. The issues with the passion translation are well documented. Um, guy called Mike Winger who I follow on YouTube has made a couple of videos about that so I'll post links to his videos in the description of this video. Passion's full of additions to the text which in their words and I'm quoting from their website uh, unlock the passion of God's heart and express his fiery love merging emotion and life-changing truth. Now this may be true um and if Simmons' mission was to create a modern paraphrase like the message, then I think he would have been semi-successful in doing this. But because he's called it a translation, it's misleading. Um, he says that he's taken it from the original languages, um, but he doesn't use the right manuscripts. He doesn't use the Greek manuscripts in many places for the New Testament. Um, and as I said, he's, he's added words in which... Um, either are not in the original text and either just don't make sense to do it like that, or they add actually add meaning to the text. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you go away and, and research that for yourself. But again, I, I would never recommend anyone read the Passion Translation as a, as a Bible translation. By all means, you go away and um, see that rendering as a paraphrase, but just be very careful not to think that it's a Bible translation. So there you have it, five Bible translations to go away and choose from and read um, and who to avoid. Today I've been answering the question, why are there so many Bibles and which one is true? And in summary, it's the way that it's translated. That's why there are so many. And um, it's not about really which Bible is true. It's about which one is best for you. I hope this has helped and I hope it's given you some food for thought. If you have any other questions, if you have any issues with stuff you're struggling with, problems with Christianity, please get in touch, uh, comment on this video, uh, visit my website morelikechrist.co.uk where you can submit a form. Please like, share, comment this video uh, if you have anything that you'd like to add, anything that you'd like to make a comment on, I'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to subscribe, uh, ring the bell if you'd like to stay notified of when I upload new videos. But until next time, let's try and be a bit more like Christ.